Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We are recording this on Thursday, June 30th, 2022. Today, we consider a tragic case out of Columbia, Missouri, where a grand jury has indicted two Phi Gamma Delta fraternity members for the hazing of a pledge that rendered him blind and unable to walk or talk. We also take a look at an ex-husband of Britney Spears being charged with stalking uh, after breaking into the pop star's home while he was live streaming. And we have breaking news on the sentencing of both Ghislaine Maxwell and R. Kelly. But first, today we are joined by Michelle C. Thomas, a veteran trial lawyer, legal analyst and founder of MC Thomas and Associates, a premier divorce and family law firm serving Maryland and Virginia, Maryland, Virginia, pardon me, and Washington, D.C. Welcome, Michelle. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Uh, Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your practice and how you got your start and your background? Sure. I've been practicing divorce and family law for nearly 20 years. I am a trial lawyer at heart but is focused in divorce and family law. And I always just had that desire to really help people. I mean, I know it sounds cliche, but I wanted to have that immediate impact on people's lives and families. And I've been able to do that now for um, going on about 19 years. So DC, Maryland, and Virginia, um, I started my own firm now about 15 years ago and there's been no looking back. So it's been great being able to serve people that way. Oh, fantastic. I, I, I know of quite a few family law attorneys and divorce lawyers, and I know that that is very, very difficult work. Uh, so I compliment you, and we look forward to hearing your thoughts on these cases. Um, so Thank let's you. jump right in. Absolutely. Uh, Ghislaine Maxwell was sentenced to 20 years for sex trafficking, and this is out of New York. The former socialite was sentenced to 20 years behind bars for her role in sexually abusing young girls with disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein. Maxwell, 60 years old, did not testify in her defense during the trial, which ended with her conviction on five counts, including sex trafficking of a minor. Judge Allison Nathan delivered a longer sentence than provided by the guidelines, noting that the victim's disturbing testimony and Maxwell's, and this is a quote, direct and repeated participation in a horrific scheme. Her defense, meanwhile, maintained that she was a scapegoat for Epstein's actions and attacked the memories and motivations of the women who say they were sexually abused. Right off the bat, what was your reaction to this sentence, uh, Michelle? Do you think it was fair? Was it long, too long, long enough? 
I think it was fair. And I think that the judge had a real desire to send a message that this type of behavior is not okay. It doesn't matter whether you have a lot of money, whether you have fame, whether you have power, but she wanted to send the message that all people, if you engage in this kind of conduct, there are consequences for your conduct. And so her going, quite frankly, a little bit above the sentencing guidelines sent that message home. So I I, I do think it was fair when you look at the facts and, and the history of this tragic situation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree with you. I think it definitely sent a message, especially given that she wasn't considered to be the primary uh, kind of abuser here, that it was Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein, as we know, uh, c- committed suicide in custody. So he was he was unable to stand trial for his own crimes. How do you think his absence affected this case, if at all? So I think, Josh, pretty significantly um, it had an impact. And here's why. One, these were such uh, heinous acts that occurred against these young women, um, girls at the time. And I think that the public wanted someone to be held accountable. They wanted someone to essentially pay for what happened to these victims when we hear heard from the victims directly, their impact statements uh, during the trial, their testimony. I believe that that the public needed someone to be held responsible for what occurred. And then once uh, Mr. Epstein was no more in 2019, that is essentially left the accomplice um, here, Ms. Maxwell, and, and that's what you have. Um, on the flip side though, I was thinking that if he was, if his trial had proceeded and was able to, to go forward, he may have thrown even more uh, blame in her direction. And so quite frankly, there could have been more culpability um, directed to her and it would have been sort of this blaming game and the two of them pointing the fingers at each other so quite frankly it could have gone either way but i think ultimately the public and the jury needed someone to be held accountable and it was her that's a really interesting point i think absolutely if he were standing trial he would be pointing everything at her and she'd be doing things doing the same it would have been interesting to see uh them both on trial together and how they would have handled that but to to kind of play off of your point that you just made that this is kind of uh, sending a message not only for her crimes, but his crimes as well. Do, do you think that she, in, is a, in a way, is paying for his crimes in part? And, and is that fair? So it, I can understand why someone would think that, why someone would think that when you issue a, a 20-year sentence that exceeds even the sentencing guidelines, why it, makes, it may present the illusion that she's paying. But the judge made clear, and I think she's correct, that uh, she is she was sentenced and, and punished and convicted for her own role, for yeah. her wrongdoing in this matter. She facilitated a lot of these young women and girls getting to Mr. Epstein. At times, she participated in these sexual assaults and what we heard from this trial. And so she may want to sort of make that claim, and I think she is saying that, that she's paying for his his sins and his crimes. But she was culpable, and I think that the judge wanted to send that no-tolerance standard and set that with this sentence. Absolutely. Uh, She didn't take the stand. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on that? You think that was a good idea or no? I mean, would it have affected the outcome? Who knows? But what are your thoughts? So I think, Josh, that she had to take the stand if she wanted to have a stronger chance of of essentially uh, vindicating herself and explaining away uh, her role and what the allegations were. But she would have also had to take some level of responsibility and she would have obviously been 
um, attacked vehemently on cross-examination. And so what we saw, at least from the sentencing trial, she's not a person who necessarily takes ownership, it seems, of her role in this. And she would have needed to do that if she had taken the stand. She would have needed to come off as sympathetic and remorseful and regretful of, of her conduct. And I don't know that she has that capacity from what we've seen. So quite frankly, it may not have mattered that much for her in particular that she didn't take the stand in her in her defense. Yeah, really good point. Yeah, if she didn't if she didn't come off in her own testimony as very sympathetic and perhaps a victim yeah. herself, and that's a very very thin line to walk. Uh, I think the jurors probably would have been even more upset with her. One last question on this case: um, an interesting thing happened. After the verdict, one of the jurors came out and said that he had been sexually abused um, uh, in, in the past and that that was something that had not been revealed during jury selection and something that he shared with fellow jurors and apparently even tried to convince other jurors of kind of the conduct of somebody who, who has suffered at the hands of sexual abuse and how they would act uh, to perhaps explain how the victims in this case acted. The, the defense attorneys for Ghislaine uh, brought this up, tried to get a new trial, and was denied. What do do you, do you think this was fair uh, by the judge? Do you think she's got a good grounds for appeal here? What are your thoughts? It wasn't just that he was a victim. This juror was a victim of sexual abuse himself, but it was that he affirmatively affirmatively made the representation that he was not a victim. I understand in his juror uh, questionnaire, and so it was that affirmative. Um, denial of it which then subsequently was proven to not shown to not be true so i do think that the defense was obligated to try to make that point they then had to have i think a special hearing with this juror to make sure that he wasn't tainted in any way in terms of his perspective that's a lot that's unusual in this type of case and so are they right to were they right to make the argument yes do i think that it's going to ultimately overturn the verdict or the sentence no i do not i don't think it's yeah. going to be that compelling um here yeah. in this case we shall see we'll keep an eye on it but i gotta say it that kind of stuff drives me nuts and i'm sure you feel the same way as a, as a trial yeah. attorney you do your best to just try to figure out who these people are and you're 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 just looking for fair people right you're just looking for people who don't have bias you're not Everybody thinks it's about getting your team on there and they're trying to get their team on there. Really, you're just trying to get rid of the people who have carry some baggage into the trial. And it's so frustrating to hear uh, cases like this that are affected by jurors who are, for whatever reason, whatever motivation, trying to get on that trial at all costs. Let's turn to another case involving uh, fame and, and sexual predatory behavior. R. Kelly was sentenced to 30 years for federal racketeering and sex trafficking, again out of New York. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York sentenced Robert Sylvester Kelly, 55 years old, to 30 years in prison. Uh, this was just this last Wednesday, June 29th. Prosecutors argued for 25 years while the defense sought 10 or fewer. Again, we have a judge who was giving a longer sentence than, uh, than recommended. However, in deciding the sentence, Judge Ann Donnelly said that she considered Kelly's traumatic childhood. His attorney said that he was repeatedly sexually abused by a family member and a landlord. Kelly refused to address the court, which Kelly's attorney, Jennifer Bonjean, citing the other criminal case Kelly is still facing. Kelly faces a federal trial in Chicago, uh, this August for charges including child pornography and obstruction, and there are also other outstanding state cases. 
Um, how about this case? Was this was this sentence shocking to you, Michelle? It, it wasn't shocking uh, that the judge would sentence R. Kelly based upon all the allegations and the testimony that we've heard now for years about what has occurred uh, to 30 years. This is a scenario. It's it's haunted us uh, in the cult pop culture. It's haunted us now for several years what R. Kelly may have done or it has now been proven to have done to many women over uh, decades. So when you have a scenario like that, facts evidence that supports it, 30 years is probably about right in terms of what you would expect uh, once the conviction has been rendered. Yeah, yeah. I, I tend to agree with you, too. I, it, it, it certainly, I, I think, goes to your point that this is, again, I think it judges sending a message that your fame, your power, your prestige, your money, none of that is going to shield you uh, when you are preying upon people who are vulnerable and younger and, and exploiting people with your power. What are your thoughts on Kelly's attorney arguments that um, he should have been shown leniency because of his own traumatic background? Do you think that carries any water? I don't. Um, I think it's a it's important for his background and trauma that he suffered to be considered. It was considered. Should it have been a basis for a more lenient sentence? When you look at the totality of the evidence over, like I said, probably decades now of damage and trauma that has been imposed on so many victims, uh, I, I don't think that you can excuse the behavior on this level when it's this uh, pervasive as we've seen with this with this situation and with R. Kelly. So, um, yes, your background, your history, it does matter. It was considered. But there are consequences for crimes. And both judges, just like in Maxwell's case in here, wanted to send a message that you cannot escape. You're, no one essentially is above the law. No. So, no. yeah. Well, let's look on the on the flip side of that, too. Uh, you, you've mentioned this a couple of times. We've been living with this culturally uh, for a couple of decades, you know, from when these allegations first started to surface about Kelly. Um, do you think he got a fair trial with all of the kind of publicity surrounding him in this case. So when you look at fairness, you want to look at things like, you know, the jury selection and where, where various pieces of evidence um, admitted or, um, or not allowed, um, you know, consistent with the law, consistent with precedents, consistent with the rules of evidence. So when you talk about fairness, I, I, I think it's a stretch to say that because of his publicity, he wasn't he may not have been able to get a fair trial. The other side of it is that because of his uh, fame, there's nowhere that the trial could have been moved necessarily that right. someone unless you've been living under a rock for the past <laughs> several years that wouldn't be familiar with this. I and mean, you have, right. you know, drama series on television. I mean, it's just it's pervasive. So. Um, I, I think under the circumstances, it's it was probably a fair trial or as fair as, as one would expect for someone with his level of, of fame. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting point. Where where else are you going to try him? Right. Um, last kind of uh, issue on this. And this was interesting to me from a from a legal perspective. But his attorneys uh, had raised the argument that it was unfair to sentence him now when he's got other pending uh, cases. And their argument behind that was it was in part a Fifth Amendment argument. Now, I'll kind of explain that for listeners, and then I want to hear your thoughts on it. But essentially, they were saying that 
you know, part of sentencing is that he's allowed to give a statement. And if that statement should include certain, you know, things uh, about mitigation, right? It's going to include, you know, him talking about his past, but it's also going to hopefully, if he's looking for a lighter sentence from the judge, include things about remorse and, and, and apology and taking responsibility. And the argument is he couldn't have done any of that because then those statements could be used against him in these other pending trials. I think that's a really interesting argument. The judge didn't buy it in, in New York. But what are your thoughts? Do you think it was fair to put him in that kind of a position? I, I do think that's an interesting debate that, that one can have. Uh, and you have to tread lightly in a situation like this where there are other pending cases. That being said, he was already convicted and he was going to serve time. And so could it have uh, been a mitigating factor had he sort of thrown himself on the mercy of the court and been extremely remorseful? Maybe. But when you look at the the crimes of which for which he's been convicted, would it have really moved the needle much? I don't know that it would have. And so um, I also think that it's incumbent upon counsel to try to help craft statements that can demonstrate a level of remorse for the situation, at least, or yeah. for what has occurred or the the trauma that the victims have gone through without possibly directly having your client make an admission uh, during that statement. So I think that there could have been a balance there struck for R. Kelly to have said something, um, but yeah. he, he chose not to. And, and, and also a little kind of understood thing is that when we have these sentencing hearings, the vast majority of the time, the judge has already made up their mind. I mean, they've received briefs. They've considered all of that. They know the number in their head. And there's very little usually that is being said during those sentencing hearings that can have any effect on the judge. It, in my experience, I've never seen it happen. I mean, I've never heard a judge indicate, you know, what you said today, sir, or what the victim said has given me pause. Let me let me have a moment to kind of reconsider my thoughts. I they they usually already have it all all spelled out. Right, right. And if anything, it goes in the reverse direction. So um, if there is a lack of remorse shown, perhaps they may get a stronger uh, sentence. But yeah. can they can the defendant or the victim say something that makes the judge say, "Oh, well, you know what? Maybe I was going to be too harsh." I, that's probably pretty unlikely i would agree no i i, I agree with you I, I if they if he stands up and says these people are all liars and he's disrespectful to the court and the the victims maybe the judge does tack on a few more years but i don't think <laughs> that she's shaving any off all right this is a crazy case uh involving britney spears's ex was ordered to stand trial on a stalking charge out of ventura california a california judge found monday that there is enough evidence against jason allen alexander to go on trial on a felony stalking charge. Allen was formally uh, formally married to Spears for three days, a whole three days that marriage lasted. Um, he showed up at her recent wedding uninvited. Spears married at this wedding was marrying her longtime boyfriend, Sam Ashgari, at her home in Thousand Oaks, California. And this was on June 9th when Alexander appeared uninvited at the house before the ceremony, live streaming his raid on Instagram. That's that's the part I think I love most about this. Uh, a security guard for Spears testified that Jason Alexander got inside Spears' home and to the locked door of a bedroom Spears was inside. He had reportedly tried to enter the property in the days before the wedding as well. So Alexander streamed himself during the alleged infraction. Is there any way to get past this as a defense or does that cook him alone? The fact that he was basically recording his crime as it was being committed. 
Yeah, it it's not completely uh, conclusive for all of the, the possible crimes here, but for some of them, like, you know, trespassing, things like that, there's no way that you can get around um, video footage of him actually on site entering the home and engaging in these um, activities. So that that is a significant hurdle. They certainly can't make the argument that it wasn't him or he wasn't there. Right. It's not going to so. be an ID case, right? Right, uh, <laughs> right. Uh, Alexander's attorney has also entered a plea of not guilty, claiming that there's no evidence that Alexander had intentions of harming Spears. Does that carry any weight with you? Yeah. Now, that's an interesting point, because when you look at the um, stalking, criminal uh, stalking statutes that, I, that he's uh, being charged with, that is what we do consider to be a specific intent crime, which means that there needs to be some intent there to uh, engage in the elements to do which would include doing harm, putting the person in imminent fear or, or harms, harms away or danger. So that part will matter in terms of them being able to prove that he had the intent to satisfy all the elements of the of criminal stalking. Yeah, it's a really interesting point you bring up. Stalking cases are notoriously difficult to prove for the prosecution uh, because there are so many elements and they kind of have to show this ongoing pattern. But I, I think, again, that's kind of the, the, the tail wagging the dog as far as the problems that Mr. Alexander is dealing with here. It, you know, he's he's charged with any number of things that I think he could easily be convicted of. Um, this just kind of raises some questions in my mind about social media in general. Have you ever ha- seen a client's actions on social media affect uh, the outcome of a trial or a, or a case that you're dealing with? Have I ever? It would be easier to say when when is it not <laughs> when when does your social media footprint not affect the yeah. case and I, that's that's a significant problem in a divorce law i mean when you have clients who are posting photos of them on vacation and you know just living it up with someone that's not their wife you know that that's a problem <laughs> and so it does happen very frequently where um, this evidence can be admissible. Photos, um, statements by the party uh, can be admissible in court and really um, do damage. So, yeah. 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 I, I oftentimes Not will tell clients, go get off it. Sign off of everything yep. right now. And it's right. amazing how hard some people have a hard time doing that. They just right. are so connected to this other world that they can't help themselves. Um, yeah. yeah, I was going to say, Josh, how many of your clients actually listen? Yeah, to that I, well, very few of them listen to anything I have to say, quite frankly. <laughs> Finally, we talk about the Mizzou frat boys charged in a hazing incident that nearly killed a pledge. This is out of Columbia, Missouri. A Boone County grand jury indicted former Phi Gamma Delta fraternity members Ryan Delante, 20 years old, and Thomas Schultz, 21, in the hazing of Daniel Santulli, 19 years old. This is really sad. Santulli was pledging the fraternity in October when he was found unresponsive due to alcohol poisoning. Authorities said his blood alcohol content was 0.486, which is six times the legal limit. On the night of October 19th, 2021, Santuli went to the chapter house for a quote-unquote pledge dad reveal night. I have no idea what that is. I wasn't in a fraternity myself. But Santuli had been sleep-deprived and stressed over pledge events from the previous month. 
Delante, who was revealed as Santulli's pledge dad, handed Santulli a family-sized bottle of Tito's. I'm guessing what that means is the, the, the bottle with the handle on it, and told him to drink it. Another fraternity member also poured beer into his mouth with a funnel and tube. Santulli was rendered blind, unable to walk or speak, and suffered extensive brain damage. David Bianchi, the lawyer for the Santulli family, has filed civil lawsuits against 23 members of the fraternity, and all but two have settled out of court. Phi, Be uh, Phi Gamma Delta Mizu chapter has been removed from the campus in the wake of the events. My first question is kind of a civil one. Do you think that the college bears any responsibility? Do you think that they there is some criminal negligence there with the with the kind of disregard for the safety of this pledge? I, I do. I do. Um, because of the actions that occurred, the volume of the, the alcohol that they were requiring him to consume. I mean, there's to get to the point where he suffered those types of damage, that type of damage to his person, to his body as a result of their actions, um, that's pretty severe. And they did, in fact, have the intent to, to take those actions, to pour the alcohol in his, you know, down his throat and um, to engage in those other types of heinous um, actions. So since they did have the intent to do that, even if they may not have believed that the end result was going to be the severity of, of the um, injuries to him, I do believe that there's culpability there, uh, whether it's criminal negligence, reckless behaviors um, for which they could possibly be uh, charged. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think they're going to have a very difficult time arguing that handing somebody a handle, a family-sized bottle of, of vodka and telling them to drink it, you, you, that you didn't expect that this would somehow cause harm to that person. Such a sad, tragic story. Um, it, it, this brings me to kind of my last thought on this, and I just kind of wanted to bounce this off of you, but... I deal uh, actually a lot of times with, with kids in schools and kids in fraternities and the, the fraternities are, or the school is accusing them of different things and dis different disciplinary actions. And schools, I don't know if you ever went to a sorority. I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't a member of fraternity, but schools sell their campuses with the allure of these fraternities by, by saying, you know, look how fun it is. Look what we've got here. Look at this, you know, kind of the college experience you're going to have because of all the fraternities we have associated with our campus. But then they're the first ones to throw those same fraternities under the bus when something bad like this happens. Is What's the problem here? Is there a hypocrisy? Who's, who, where, did, where should the buck stop on, all, on these types of cases that we keep hearing about? Yeah, I think it's a it's a gray area, but you can, on the one hand, benefit from right. the sorority and fraternity culture and life. And then on the other hand, say, oh, no, it has nothing to do with us. It, it, it does have something to do with you and your culture. And so the question becomes, how much oversight should the university provide to these fraternities that have to be organized under the school's um, leadership and whatever the, their policies are? Uh, these are formal organizations of the schools and so that that have the ability to act and and represent themselves as fraternities and sororities of the university so should the universities have more oversight that's the question and you know it appears as though certainly there's a strong argument that they should yeah yeah well something needs to be done to kind of prevent these types of things from happening it's so sad michelle it was such a pleasure to hear all your thoughts and thank you so much for coming on this week where can people find out more about you 
Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And you can find me online at thomaslawdc.com. I'm all over social media, Instagram at Michelle C. Thomas ESQ. Uh, connect with me, follow me for great tips, information on divorce, success, all that good stuff. So thank you so much. This was really great, Josh. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Fantastic. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And you can find our Sorry Buyer episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD Sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. <laughs>